As we've already said a couple times today, today is uh, the last study we're going to do in the book of Ecclesiastes. We've been working through this book over the summer months here, and uh, we will plan to start James chapter 1 next week. As we've gone through this book, you've heard us over and over again refer to the words of the preacher. We don't know who this preacher was, but we have been able to benefit from his wisdom throughout this book. We call him the preacher because uh, it's a a translation of this idea that he, he taught the assembly of God's people in Israel. And as he's told us, his observations, they've all been kind of under this big headline that we see at the beginning of the book in chapter 1, verse 2. And we saw in the passage you looked at last week in chapter 12, verse 8, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. If this had a cover, you know, if you gave this, had this book on a shelf at Barnes & Noble, that's probably what would be in big letters on the cover. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Now this is the preacher's way of saying that life in this fallen world doesn't make sense. And he's told us all the reasons why it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense because righteous people are often treated as if they were wicked. And evil people seem to get away with murder. It doesn't make sense because it doesn't seem to matter whether you are man or animal, you're all going to die. It doesn't seem to matter whether you're wise or foolish. All of this is beyond our ability to understand. Preachers told us we can work night and day and never sleep and not be able to figure out what's going on in this world if left to our own wisdom. But despite this message, the preacher's overall message isn't hopeless. He says that even though this life doesn't make sense, We can enjoy life. We can enjoy it as a gift God has given. We can rejoice in our work and the benefits that we get from work. But beyond this this call to enjoy life, there's something else going on kind of in the background of this book that's a, a reason why we can have hope in a world that's so confusing. And that's made clear in this final section, verses 9 through 14, that we're going to look at today. And these are, in some ways, odd verses because they take us out of the preacher's words. It seems like what we have here are the words of another voice. Maybe we would call him an editor who's looking back on the preacher's words and commending them to us and explaining what they were. And the the sort of punchline, the reason for hope is that he's telling us here the preacher's words are God's words. These words we've been reading all along, these words that have been pointing out the difficulties of life and calling us to live wisely, these are God's words, the words of the one shepherd, as we'll read in a minute. And this is a foundational reason for hope. Because this tells us that God, the God who made us and the God who put us in this world and the the God who's still working and, and alive, has not left us alone in this sinful world. But God speaks to us. The reason we can have hope in a world that doesn't make sense is because God speaks to us. He's spoken through the preacher. And this is truly miraculous. Despite the corruption that our sin has brought into the world, God has not left us alone. 
he speaks. He speaks to us through his word. And so this morning, as we look at these final verses of Ecclesiastes, we're going to look at what this editor, this other voice, has to say about the preacher's word. And as we do so, we're going to learn about God's word. And so we're going to look at six statements about God's word in these last few verses. Just to put your minds at ease, five of these are going to be pretty short, and we're going to spend most of our time on the last one. If you have a copy of the Children's Listening Guide, they have a, there's a, 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 an adult section on the back. So if you ever want to get the outline for the sermon these days, you can look at the back. Now, unfortunately, today's section has a, a misprint in that it starts numbering the points at number seven. Stephen, thankfully, brought that to my attention. I blame Microsoft Word. I don't think it was my fault. But, so not point seven, but point one is this. God used men to give us his word. Statement number two is, God's word is wise. Number three, God's word is true. Number four, God's word convicts. Number five, God's word never changes. And number six, God's word is life-giving. So if you didn't get those down, don't worry. We're going to be going over each of them. They won't be hard to get as we go. Before we look at the number, the first one, that God used men to give us his word, let's go ahead and read our passage and dive in. So we're looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 12, beginning in verse 9. If you've got a Bible, you've been given by us, you can turn to page 559. Listen to God's word from Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 9. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flood. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is God's word. In his reflection on the preacher's words, this final speaker gives us kind of a two-step argument about the preacher's words. So step one of the argument is verses 9 and 10. We see that the preacher's words are wise words. They are carefully chosen words. They are words of delight. And they are words of truth. So he's, he's giving us the characteristics of the preacher's words. They are wise and true words. And then step two is verse 11. And we get there kind of a more general statement about the words of the wise. It says, The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by the one shepherd. So we have this description of the words of the wise and the collected sayings that's more general. And we'll talk about what goads and nails firmly fixed means in a minute. But for now, I just want you to see that the preacher is telling us that these words of the wise, these collected sayings, these are God's words. The one shepherd is a, is a picture of God, the shepherd of Israel. So God's words are the words of the wise. 
God's words are like nails firmly fixed. So the, we have the first statement specifically about the preacher's words, then this general statement about wise words. And I think what the editor is trying to do is tell us that we should understand the preacher's words to be God's word. The preacher's words bear all the hallmarks of God's word. They're wise words, they're carefully chosen words, and they're true words. And so they should be included among this category of words we call the words of the wise, the collected sayings of the one shepherd. The preacher's words belong in this group of words that we call scripture. The preacher's careful, wise, and true words are God's words. They were given by God. So what we see is that God used the preacher's observations to teach his people truth, to give them knowledge. And by God's grace, these words were not just taught in the assembly of Israel, but they were written down and preserved for us through centuries and millennia down to today so that we can read them and benefit from them as well. Now, we have to admit, we can't explain exactly how God accomplishes this, how he inspired men. But Christians affirm that the scriptures are God's word and that God worked through men. We already read this morning, Pat read for us in 2 Peter 1.21, that the men were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The scriptures aren't any man's idea. They don't come about through the will of man, but through the will of God, as God carries men along by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how we get God's word. So we see God's giving us his word is, is a miraculous act of his grace and kindness. And none of us can exhaustively explain how God did this. But we believe that every word of scripture is inspired by God. It's breathed out by God. And so we believe these words of scripture, they have complete authority over our lives. They are true and we should submit to them. For people who have sinned against God and who live in a world stained by sin, the fact that God reveals himself to us in his word is an amazing gift. I want to read to you how some theologians and Bible scholars have understood or tried to articulate the nature of God's word given through men. Listen to these statements. First they said, We affirm that inspiration was the work in which God, by his spirit, through human writers, gave us his word. The origin of scripture is divine. The mode of divine inspiration remains largely a mystery to us. We deny that inspiration can be reduced to human insight or to heightened states of consciousness of any kind. Then they go on to say, we affirm that God in his work of inspiration utilized the distinctive personalities and literary styles of the writers whom he has chosen and prepared. We deny that God, in causing these writers to use the very words that he chose, overrode their personalities. And then they conclude this little section of their statement by saying, we affirm that inspiration, though not conferring omniscience, guaranteed true and trustworthy utterance on all matters of which the biblical authors were moved to speak and write. We deny that the finitude or fallenness of these writers, by necessity or otherwise, introduced distortion or falsehood into God's word. 
These sentences come from a, a statement called the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. It was written in the 1970s by a group of faithful evangelical scholars and theologians, men you'd recognize like R.C. Sproul and James Montgomery Boyce and J.I. Packer were part of this conference of 300 people who came up with this statement to clarify what we believe about God's word. And I just want to re- remind you of a few things they said. First, they admit this is a mystery to us. We can't fully understand how it is that God worked through the preacher or God worked through the apostles to to write and and how he inspired them, but he did. We can't fully understand it, but we believe God did it. We also don't believe that inspiration happened the way that Mormons and Muslims believe their scriptures came to be. So if you research how the Book of Mormon came to be or how Muhammad wrote the the book of, uh, the, the um, Quran, you, you get a kind of a dreamlike trance that these men entered into. And they were almost like taken over so their personalities were removed and they just sort of sped out these scriptures, or at least that's the, the story. And that's not what we believe about the, the way the Bible was produced. We believe that God worked through the men's personalities and even their literary styles and, and he prepared them for this task. And so God worked through the preacher. God worked through the preacher's observations to, to give us wisdom. He worked through the preacher's search for words of delight. God's working through the way he created these men. We also affirm that even as God used men, these words are divine words. They're God's words. So God used the preacher to teach ancient Israel his wisdom and his truth. And we see that by God's grace and power, he prevented the fallenness of these human beings from introducing error into his word. So when God inspired these words, they were true words. Now, this is not a claim that we have the the originals that the Apostle Paul wrote with his own hand. By God's grace, we have tons of copies, and we can come to uh, understand what he wrote. And here in Ecclesiastes, We see that God worked through the preacher, and apparently God worked through another man as well to produce this book. Most of it's the preacher's words, but apparently there's this other man who's come along to to introduce a little bit. We see some hints of introduction in the the first chapter, and then to conclude and wrap up what the preacher said. So God works through both of them to give us the preacher's word, his true word, the words of God. You see what a miracle God's word is. We're told in verse 9, again, the preacher took great care to study and arrange his teaching. In verse 10, we're told about how he sought out words of delight. These are good words. They're appropriate words, fitting words. There's not a word out of place. Something only God can do. God has graciously deposited his good word in the scriptures. Do we take advantage of it? Do we see what a gift it is? Do we seek it out and listen to it? Even already we've prayed and speak, O Lord. We've prayed for ourselves that we would hear God's word and that it would build us up in our faith. Are we listening to God's word? God has given us his word. And do we treasure the words of God as as his gift to us? So that's our first statement about scripture. God used men to give us His word, and what a gift it is to us. The second statement is that God's word is wise. 
God's word is wise. We're told in verse 9 that the preacher was wise and that he chose his words carefully. And then we're told this more general statement about the words of the wise, that they're like goads and that they're given by the one shepherd. God's word is wise. Our study in Ecclesiastes has been, a, has been a meditation of God's wisdom for us in this book. Let's just think about a few of the, the wise things he's told us. One of the themes that comes up again and again is that we should consider death. That if we're going to live wisely in this world, we have to know that we're going to die. In the words of Psalm 90, we should ask God to number, teach us to number our days so that we can get a heart of wisdom. So God's wisdom teaches us not to presume on this life, not to assume that it's going to go on forever. He's given us our lives now to prepare for eternity with him. And we've seen also in Ecclesiastes that God has put eternity in our hearts. So the very tension that the preacher wrestles with, the the kind of vanity of of a life that ends in death for all, That fact that we're wrestling with that is is proof that God's put eternity in our hearts and he's made us for more than this life. And so the reality of death, the shortness of life, should teach us to look to God for life. This is wisdom. It's wise to consider death. The preachers also call us to consider how little we know. God's wisdom teaches us to consider how little we know. He says we can't know just from simple observation even what happens to the spirit of a man or an animal. If you watch a man die or an animal die, you really don't see much difference, right? Only by God's revelation do we know that there is some difference and that a man's soul returns to the God who made him. We're dependent on God to tell us. The preachers also told us that we can't know the future. You can't even know the future of how your own family will turn out. The preacher exposed the vanity of, you know, if you accumulate some wealth and you leave it to your descendants, you don't know whether those descendants are going to use it wisely or foolishly. We can't know the future. We can't even know what's good and wise on our own. We need God to tell us. We need God's wisdom to tell us what is good and what's worth living for. So it's wise to admit how little we know and that we need God's wisdom. We see in this book that God knows us, and and therefore, uh, God knows us because he made us. This is the theme throughout scripture, that God's wisdom is is, is connected to his work of creation. He knows us because he made us. And if you've ever worked on something in your house, you kind of have a a tiny sense of this, right? If you've you've painted your house, you know, well, that's the place where I kind of missed up on the baseboards, and there's this little thick white part that shouldn't be there, you know, or, you know, I, I installed a door a couple of years ago, and Lucas helped me, and when I installed the, the latch, I couldn't get the, the little latch and the strike plate all lined up, and so I know you just kind of have to pull it just right to get it to shut. Now, I know that because I, I made it, so to speak, you know? If you know, if you've made something, you know it. You know its quirks. You know why those dents and dings are there on your car. You made them. God knows us perfectly. Because he made us. And so he can perfectly diagnose our problems. He reveals our sinfulness. He puts his finger right on our pride. He knows all the ways that we can go wrong. 
And he can also tell us how to live in a way that's consistent with his design, a way that leads to our flourishing and glory. Most importantly, in his wisdom, God has revealed the way we can be saved from our sin. So Jesus Christ, in his work on the cross, is the wisdom of God. In our folly, we know we've strayed far away from God's wise ways. But Christ came to save us. We see that the wise way for sinners to live in this world is to turn from our sin and to trust in Christ in his work. Sinners who are facing death and judgment can find life and forgiveness by faith in Jesus Christ. We can find this because Christ died to bear the judgment our sins deserve. So even though the preacher wrote way before the the full revelation of Christ came, his wise words point us to Jesus as the ultimate wise word of God. God's word is wise. The next statement we see about God's word is that God's word is true. In its chapter on the Holy Scripture, the Westminster Confession of Faith says that the authority of the Holy Scripture does not depend on the testimony of any man or church, but entirely upon God, its author, who is truth itself. Therefore, it is to be received because it is the word of God. God is truth itself, and his word is true. God's word has the character of God. God's word is true. This is true of the words of Ecclesiastes. The the writer here at the end is telling us the preacher spoke true words. He spoke God's words. So much of our mental energy today is spent trying to figure out, is what I'm hearing true? There's so much information that comes at us, and it's impossible to sort through it all. So you know that the news that you hear, the information that you hear, comes with its own agenda. I feel like here living in the midst of a pandemic, we know that especially. So our government leaders, they have an agenda. Members of the media have an agenda. Advertisers have an agenda. Your Aunt Sally on Facebook, she has an agenda. What should you believe? Can you trust what you're hearing? We all need to grow in our discernment. It's important to learn who to trust and who to ignore. But the reality is that no one, no one that's human and and not Jesus, is right all of the time. The person you trust the most, sometimes they get things wrong. Hopefully they are humble enough to admit that, but that's rare as well, isn't it? And then even those people that we might totally dismiss, even the, the craziest kook out there, They're right sometimes, right? The broken clock is right twice a day. So how do we know what to believe? As well-meaning as a friend might be, we, we know that no one is a perfectly reliable source of truth. But there is one place we can go for the truth. God's word is true. And that's why we need frequent exposure to the truth. It's been good for us to spend this summer in Ecclesiastes because each week we've been facing the truth that the preacher has for us. One of the reasons we come back to church each week and we don't get sort of an injection of scripture once a year is because we need frequent exposures to the truth. One of the reasons we encourage you to, to read the Bible regularly on your own is you need frequent exposures to the truth. 
When we as a church make a, a weekly habit of gathering around God's word, we grow in our knowledge of what God says is true. And the preacher has helped us that way in the summer. He told us about how to have ears for the truth. So he's even given us some tips for discernment. He says that the, the words of the wise heard in quiet are better than shouting among fools. At the end of chapter 8, he told us not to believe a man who claims to know everything because such knowledge is impossible. And so by paying attention to the truth of God's word, we actually grow in our ability to spot truth and lies elsewhere. We need God's truth. God's word is true, and so we can build our lives around it. There's nothing else we can say that about. We don't have to wonder or second-guess God's word. We should seek to understand it and submit to it, because it's true. In a world that's full of disinformation or misinformation or just outright lies, the truth of God and his word is a wonderful place to rest. Where are you looking for truth? God's word is true. The next statement about God's word is that God's word convicts. We see that God's word is not just true in a general sense, but it's true when it comes to the specific details of our lives. So this book we're looking at, written thousands of years ago, can, can pierce us, can't it? It can identify our sin. The truth of God's word convicts. In verse 11, the writer says that the words of the wise are like goads. Given that the end of this verse speaks about a shepherd, we should probably understand goad here to be a, a tool that a shepherd would use. So maybe something sharp on the end of a stick that he uses to poke the sheep back on the path and steer them away from things that would cause them danger, to, to get them out of the patch of weeds that would give them indigestion. The, the goad is the pointy thing. It pierces you. It, it gets you back in line. That's what the words of the wise are like. That's what God's word is like. It convicts. The author of Hebrews describes God's word as living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. God's word convicts. It lays open our hearts. It shows us where we've gone wrong. And haven't we found that the preacher's words have done this? Again and again, the preachers expose the way we've put our hopes in the things of this world. We've hoped in our money, in our work, in our pleasure. And he's told us how foolish we've been to trust in these things, to, to trust in this vulnerable world that's vanishing. We presume that life will go on forever, but the preacher has reminded us to consider death. And he's reminded us that when we die, we'll face God, our judge. You see, with these words, the, the shepherd is goading us away from the cliffs that would mean our death. God's word convicts. Do you see that you need this? I hope it's one of the reasons that you come to church, to be convicted of your sin. One of the reasons we read the Bible is because we need it to show us where we've gone astray. We need, to God, we need God to, to get out his scalpel and do exploratory surgery 
to expose our sin so we can repent of it. This goading work of God's word is so important because ultimately it convicts us of Christ. It leads us to rely on the the grace and the forgiveness that come through Jesus Christ. And we receive this grace as we confess our sin and ask for his mercy. The convicting power of God's word leads us to greater, greater, greater reliance on Christ as we realize our weakness and we ask for his help. And it ultimately leads us to become more like Christ in the way we live every day. So the word brings conviction by showing us Jesus. We need to see that being like Christ is our ultimate goal. The work that God has given all of us is to be more like Jesus and to help each other grow to be more like Jesus. That is our work as a church. As we become more like Jesus, then the brighter our witness to Christ grows and we become better evangelists. Is that the work you're about? Are you about the work of becoming more like Jesus by studying his word? Are you about the work of speaking his word to your brothers and sisters to help them grow to be more like Jesus? And are you open to the convicting power of the word of God? Are you humbly listening to the word of God so it, so it can convict you? If you're listening to the Bible or listening to sermons regularly and, and even reading the Bible regularly and you're never convicted of your sin, something is terribly wrong. You need to reevaluate how you're reading and how you're listening. Confronting God's truth, God's convicting truth should lead us to repentance. Otherwise, we may be being hardened to God's truth. The word of God is such a wonderful thing because not only does it convict us of our sin, but it shows us that there is hope and help for sinners. The convicting work of God through his word points us to Christ as the remedy sinful people need. It convicts us of our sin and it convicts us of Christ. God's word convicts. We also see here in verse 11 that God's word never changes. We see that the, 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 the collected sayings of God are compared to nails firmly fixed. It never changes. It's a firm foundation. God's word is like nails that never move. See, the things that we know can change. And think about how different God's truth is, God's unchanging word is, from the knowledge that we gain in this world. How many of you were told growing up that you could not go swimming after you ate a meal? Because you might drown, right? The blood's going to rush to your stomach to digest your food and your arms aren't going to work anymore and you're going to drown. So that's something we knew that we now see is false, right? It's, it's not true anymore. How many of us learned that Pluto is the ninth planet in our solar system, only to be told now that it's not a planet but a dwarf planet? I learned that on Wikipedia, by the way, which itself is designed to change, right? It's updated with, by the crowd, changing when, when new information comes along. You can go and edit it to reflect the new information. See, because of how limited we are, the things that we know for certain can change. 
Again, just look at the last 18 months of news coverage to see all the things that we thought we knew about the coronavirus that have changed. It's not only these sorts of bare facts that change, but we also see that the world's standards of right and wrong change. They're constantly changing. So we see things that were acceptable to say and put on a TV show five years ago are, are no longer acceptable and they might get you canceled. In just a few short years, our country's legal definition of marriage has changed. Common ideas about gender and sexuality have changed. And we're constantly told we need to change along with the times. We need to change our views and update our standards to keep up with the world. No one wants to seem old-fashioned or out of date or prejudiced. But God's word doesn't change. God's word is like nails firmly fixed. It doesn't move. We can trust that what God said yesterday is true today and will be true tomorrow. In a world where the very idea of truth is out of fashion, we desperately need to cling to the unchanging word of God. It's good news that God's word doesn't change. And yet, at the same time, we have to be aware that the unchanging truth of God will not be popular in a changing world. We may be attacked and demonized for holding to the truth of God's word. Just this week, a, a Christian writer was suspended by Twitter for, uh, for hateful conduct because they simply stated that it is wrong for a man calling himself Laura Hubbard to compete against women in the Olympic weightlifting competition. It was just a statement, but this was considered to be hateful conduct. Now, this is hardly severe persecution, but it does show us how our changing culture is out of step with the changeless truth of God's word. God's truth about men and women and how he made us never changes, no matter how loudly our culture may protest against it. God's truth doesn't change. There's another reason that God's unchanging truth is good news, and this is when we see this when we look to God's promises. God's promises never fail. They cannot fail. God always keeps his promises. A couple of weeks ago, we had the theological theme of our service of God's immutability, which is just a theological word for meaning God never changes. Because God never changes, his word never changes, and his promises cannot fail. This, we see this gloriously when we recall that he promises to save sinners who trust in Christ. That's a promise that's firmly fixed like nails. In John 6, 37, Jesus himself says, Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. That's a promise firmly fixed. So if you know you are dead in your sin, you can count on God's unchanging promise. Jesus will receive those who come to him. You know, he, won't, he won't say, well, you've had a bad day, so I'm not receiving you today. His unchanging promise is, I will receive you if you come to me. God will give life to those who trust in Christ. Jesus said in that same passage, This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. That's a firmly fixed promise of God. It doesn't depend on how you feel today. It's a hope we can cling to in the face of the world that's constantly changing. 
It's a hope that we can cling to in this life under the sun that doesn't make sense. It's a fixed promise. God will raise us up if we put our hope in Jesus. God's word never changes. Finally, this leads us to our last statement, that God's word gives life. We see this truth couched in the warning of verse 12. The writer says, My son, beware of anything beyond these. Speaking about these words of wisdom, the collected sayings of the shepherd. Beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. So we see that the study of other books wears you out. And by contrast, God's word gives life. It surprised me to read that there were other books and that there were many other books. So the making of many books there was no end. We know that this writer lived at least 2,000 years ago, or more than that, and 2,000 years before the printing press. So if you might see like a a Gutenberg Bible, something that was produced in the early printing press, you you need like a cart to carry it around, right? You're not putting that thing under your arm to carry it to church. And that, that, that's, a, that's a, technically speaking, a modern book produced in the modern era. So back when, when the Ecclesiastes were written, we didn't have printing presses. We didn't have a book industry. There were no mass market paperbacks. But apparently, people were writing stuff down. And information was being disseminated. And some of it was not good. Some scholars believe that Ecclesiastes was composed in the 4th or 5th century BC and that at this time there was a a popularity of Greek philosophy among Israelites. And so maybe the the writer here is saying that that you should avoid this Greek philosophy that's going around. Don't, Don't put your trust in that just because it appears that things are going badly for Israel. That's a an educated guess. The only thing we can really say for sure is what these words were not, these many books that weary you. These were not books that taught God's wisdom or God's truth. And those who give a lot of time to studying these things, these things that don't contain God's wisdom, you're going to be worse off than when you started. If you put your hope in these things that are contrary to God's truth, you're not only receive no benefit, you're worn out. So the writer here warns us against devoting ourselves to things that will wear us out. This called to mind a a similar warning in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4 is a, a wonderful passage about the church and about what God has given to the church and how God intends Christians in the church to build each other up, to do the work of the ministry. But in the middle of this encouragement, this call to maturity, the Apostle Paul gives a warning. He warns us not to be like children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Paul says that there's cunning people out there and they've got deceitful schemes. They would deceive you if they could. That's what they're trying to do. And he also seems concerned about all these doctrines floating around. There's lots of new and novel things being taught. So he identifies a couple of dangers. There's the the danger of being taken in by a deceiver, of, of believing something that's false. So false teaching is a danger. Or you can become someone who's just obsessed with everything new and following all the doctrinal back and forth. 
following all the controversies. And Paul's point there is that neither of things are going to help build up the church. Neither of these things are going to give life, the life that's going to produce Christian maturity. These things are things that will wear you out. They will divide the church. They're a distraction from the work God intends for Christians to do. I think this captures what, the, what we're being warned against here in Ecclesiastes. We're being warned against those things that would distract us from the fear of the Lord. Now, we live in an age where this, this problem is even greater than it was for the preacher, right? We have access to, to books and radio programs and podcasts and information on YouTube. We're overwhelmed by teaching. A lot of it's really good, and it's, it's a great time to be alive, and just the access we have to all these things. But there's a lot that's bad. And there's no shortage of controversies about all the things that go on. And it should make us ask, what, are I giving, what am I giving my attention to? We should ask if the people that we're listening to, are they out to deceive us? Or are they out to edify us? We should ask about our own hearts as we, as we seek out information. Am I just looking for kind of purient curiosity at things? Am I just interested in controversy? Do I just kind of want to sit back and eat popcorn and watch a fight? What's the fruit in your life of the teaching you hear? Is it building you up and encouraging you? Or is it wearing you out? The word of God will be life-giving. But there are many things that we can give our attention to that will weary the flesh. Paul says that it's the truth of the gospel, speaking the truth in love, that brings growth, the growth he's after. It's Christ himself, Paul says, that's the source of Christian maturity and unity for the church. Now, the writer of Ecclesiastes doesn't mention the gospel, but he does. the, the book concludes with a huge gospel theme. When we've touched on it again and again, it concludes with the fear of God. That's the last life-giving word we're given here in this book. Look at verses 13 and 14. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. I said this is the last life-giving word, but these don't sound like very life-giving words. <laughs> Fear. Commandments, judgment, those are kind of scary words, right? But we have to see that the life-giving gospel begins with the truth about God. God is holy and righteous. He is perfectly good, always purely good. And because of this, because of his righteous goodness, he hates what is evil. Again, that sounds scary at first, but, but just consider what would it be like to have a God who indulged evil? who didn't care about evil, who kind of let evil go on unaddressed. It's very good news that God is a righteous judge of sin. He would not be worth worshiping if he turned a blind eye to evil. We see here in Ecclesiastes that God is the, the uncreated creator. and He commands our worship and obedience. We have to begin with God if we're to get to the life-giving news of the gospel. The bad news continues that we've rebelled against God. We've done evil things. 
We've done evil things in public, and we've done evil things secretly. As I looked up this idea of, of secret things, I saw that it also is a, an idea that um, refers to sort of sins of omission, sins we might not have even realized we were doing. All these things are going to be brought into God's presence, into the presence of the mighty judge. Everything we've done. And we have, we'll have to face the fact that we have failed to honor God as creator. We failed to obey him. We failed to worship and trust in him. We'll be confronted with our hateful thoughts and our covetous thoughts and our immoral desires. We'll be confronted with the evil words we've spoken. We've been, we'll be confronted with evil actions we've taken. We will be confronted with all these things before God our judge. The writer of Ecclesiastes here at the end says that the whole duty of man is to fear God and keep his commandments. The life-giving word of the gospel begins by showing us that we have not feared God and we have not kept his commandments. Now we might think that in response to that problem, the answer is, well, just get started keeping those commandments. If we start to understand our sin, we might think we just need to sort of try to make up for it. You know, maybe we do some extra good stuff to kind of put icing on the cake. But we can't try to obey our way out of this problem. Because even one sin condemns us. So instead of trusting in the false promises of sin, if we're trying to obey our way out, we're just trying to switch to trusting in the false promises of self-righteousness. And neither will work. We're just trading one false promise, one false God for another. No, we have to first come to the fear of God. How do we do that? Well, there's not a step-by-step process. But there is a key to the fear of the Lord. We see it in Psalm 130, verse 4. In that, that passage we see, the psalmist says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Life-giving fear of God comes when we encounter the amazing grace of God. And we see this grace in Jesus Christ. When Jesus became a man and died on the cross for our sins in the place of sinners, we see a perfect picture of God's justice and mercy. We see in the cross how God doesn't sweep sin under the rug. He doesn't ignore it. God's solution to the problem of sin is to take sin on himself. God judges sin in the person of the incarnate Son of God. Jesus came to carry the weight of our sin, to bear the wrath that our sin deserves. God's judgment is poured out on God the Son at the cross. And we see this mighty display of God's judgment. We see God's hatred for sin. At the very same time, we see God's mercy. Because Jesus did this. God did this so he could save us. He came to seek and to save the lost. It's by faith in Jesus that sinners receive the forgiveness of God. When we look to Jesus, we see the astounding goodness of God. That's what it means when it says that with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. 
when we see the forgiveness of God, we tremble at his goodness. If we would fear God, we must look to Jesus. If you would fear the Lord, look to Jesus. When we sinners who know we should be condemned forever for our sin, when we truly see the goodness of God in Jesus, then we know what it means to fear the Lord. When you know that you deserve hell, but Jesus took hell upon himself for your sake, when that leads you to worship God, then you know the fear of the Lord. John Bunyan said, There is nothing in heaven or earth that can so awe the heart as the grace of God. Does that describe you? Have you encountered the grace of God in Christ? Are you overcome by God's goodness to you? Is the forgiveness of God the most gripping reality of your life? This is where the the book of Ecclesiastes is leading us. These are the life-giving words of God. Paying attention to this word doesn't weary your flesh. It gives life to your soul. God's word is life-giving. And it's only when we fear God that we are ready to keep his commandments. When we fear God, when we see God's goodness in Christ, then we're ready to see the goodness of what God has told us to do. We can sum the commandments up the way Jesus did with the two great commandments in Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 through 40. He said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. The Puritan Thomas Boston explained the difference between the fear of God we have before we trust in Christ and after. She said, before we trust in the gospel, we only fear hell and punishment. But a gospel fear of God dreads sin itself. He said that the the one fear is mixed with hatred of God, the other of love to him. The one looks on God as a revenging judge, but the other as a holy father, to whose holiness the heart is reconciled and the soul longs to conform. You see, when we fear God, when we see the goodness of God in Jesus Christ, we long to be like him. We hate our sin and we love the things that God loves. Fearing God must precede keeping the commandments. It's only when we come to see the Lord as a holy father and a good king that we're ready to obey him. When we fear him, we see his goodness and we see the goodness of his ways. We fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. So even though our good works don't save us, we should look at our lives and examine our good works. We should be asking, do I love what God loves? Do I hate sin the way that Jesus hates sin? We should ask, am I growing in obedience? Is there a trajectory in my life that's, that's headed towards Christ and Christ-likeness? You can look at yourself over time and consider, am I, am I loving, my, loving my neighbor, my, my wife and my children and my brothers and sisters? Am I loving them better today than I did a year ago or, or 10 years ago? 
that time element is really helpful because our growth is often slow. This is a good question to ask with someone who knows you well because often we're blinded to our own ways of doing things. We need someone else who knows us well and loves us to be able to, to, be able to encourage us and say, Brother, I see the way God's been working in your life over these last few years. You're a better husband today or a better employee today because of the way you're following Christ and applying his word. These are good ways to diagnose your spiritual health. If we honestly look at our lives like this, we need to be ready for the fact that we're going to see some things that discourage us. We're going to see our sin and probably some new ways that we hadn't seen it before. But we shouldn't take that as a reason to be discouraged or give up. It's just a new opportunity to repent and to taste the grace of God once again. It's a good idea to be re- or a good opportunity to be reintroduced to the fear of the Lord. It's another reminder that we can fellowship with God by doing what he commands. So we should examine our lives. Examine, am I keeping the commandments of God in the fear of the Lord? And if I'm not keeping the commandments of God, how is it pointing to my my failure to trust and rejoice in the grace of God? Because a, a failure to obey God is never just about the external sin. It's revealing your heart. If you're failing to obey God, it's because in some way you're failing to rejoice in his goodness through Jesus Christ. So we should ask these questions because we want to understand how are we worshiping? Am I trusting God or am I trusting in something else? God's word gives life. His gospel gives life to sinners who believe. His commands give life to those who know and worship him. This is where the book of Ecclesiastes leaves us. Here is its wisdom for us. Fear God and keep his commandments. Again, if we call ourselves Christians, then we should understand that Jesus has given each one of us the calling to live this out. So each of us as individuals is called to to seek the fear of the Lord and obedience to Christ's commandments. That's what our lives are to be about to grow in the fear of the Lord and to grow in obedience to God. But it's not just about you as an individual. This is also the work of the church. It's not the the pastor's work primarily. The pastor's job is to equip you to do this work. The pastor's job, our job, is to equip you to help each other fear God and keep his commandments. To help each other speak the truth of the gospel to one another in love so that you grow to be more like Jesus. We're supposed to give our lives to this task. After Paul warns about false doctrine and deceitful schemes that we looked at earlier in Ephesians 4, he says that instead of paying attention to these things, we should speak the truth in love and grow up in every way into Christ who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You see how God's word brings life. What a beautiful picture of a body of people who are growing together into the image of Christ. Every part working together. Every part speaking the truth in love. Every part seeking to fear God and keep his commandments and and trying to help each other fear God and keep his commandments. 
This is who we are supposed to be. This is the job God's given each one of us as Christians, to to proclaim God's life-giving word to each other and to trust that through that work, God will build us into the church he wants us to be. Is your life given to that work? Or are you consumed with the vanities of life under the sun? The book of Ecclesiastes brings us to this point. It's shown us the emptiness of all the things that we could be living for and hoping in. And finally, the preacher and the editor have both pointed us to God, our maker and our judge. And he's asking us here, are we listening to God? Are we submitting to God's word? When God's word convicts us, are we repenting? Do our lives show the life-giving power of the word of God? Or do they show that we're just completely worn out because we're listening to all these other voices? Are we submitting to God or are we ignoring him? As we live this life under the sun, there's so much that doesn't make sense, but we've been given God's word. Are we clinging to it? Are we turning from the vanity of the world to the goodness of God? This is the whole duty of man. Fear God and keep his commandments. On our own, we are no match for the sin and the suffering that we encounter in this life under the sun. But we're not on our own. God has spoken to us. He's spoken a word of amazing grace and eternal life in Jesus Christ. Hear his gracious word. Look to Christ and tremble at the goodness of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have not left us alone. We praise you for your grace that's on display in your word and in the word, Jesus Christ. You've made it very clear what you've called us to do, to fear you and to keep your commandments. Father, we pray this would be our goal in life, that we would live for this, that we would glorify and enjoy you forever, that we would fear you and obey you. We ask for this in Christ's name. Amen.